Welcome, everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay. I'm on a mission to help entrepreneurs advance society, and this podcast is part of that effort. Today, we've got our normal partner meeting, uh, supplemented with a guest conversation. So Fong is going to lay down some wisdom about building sales teams that I think is worthwhile for a lot of founders out there. Uh, we're going we're to wrap on a little bit of blockchain life. Uh, and then we've got Vivian Wang from Landed, one of the Interplay portfolio companies. Uh, and she's got a really interesting story personally and a great perspective. Her industry that she plays in is the restaurant space. We're going to talk about post-COVID life, uh, the increasing role of technology and how that plays out. And then we also take a little detour. She's a graduate of Y Combinator, and we get some best practices and tips for how to navigate that. I hope you enjoy. Hello, Fong. Hi, Mark. How are you? Good. How was your costume party last night? Oh, it was amazing. We had uh, our school had a Hollywood theme uh, dress up party. So it was either dressing up as your favorite movie or red carpet. And my husband and I dressed up as Indiana Jones in Short Round, who is the 10 year old Chinese boy in the third movie. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> and it's amazing. funny because my, my husband's like 6'4 and I'm five feet tall. So it just kind so of kind naturally of lends its, yeah, totally worked. That, Although were, I was, the, we're the only ones who actually pulled off an outfit. I feel like most people, when there's a costume party, just find something that is flattering yes. and pretend so that that's, it's someone. That was the situation I was in where there were a lot of red carpet, beautiful gowns and tuxedos. And I was part of the 20% who <laughs> showed up in a costume and specifically a, a 10-year-old boy. <laughs> right. Amazing. Amazing. So miserable you. night. <laughs> no, good for you. That's awesome. It was fun. All right, let's get into it. What do you got for us this week? All right, Mark. So today I wanted to talk about sales teams and specifically as a startup, when is the best time to build that team? And then when you decide that it is, how to best compensate them. So, you know, when you're just starting out, obviously salespeople aren't the first people you hire. You don't even have a product yet, so there's nothing to sell. But as you're building and testing your product, how do you know when you're ready for dedicated salespeople? So if you're kind of too early in the process, you're not going to have the revenue to be able to hire the best salespeople without burning some serious cash. And then hiring mediocre salespeople, it's not going to give you the results that you're looking for. But then if you wait until you're too late in the process, you're going to struggle to get the customers you need to really fuel your growth. So just a couple guidelines to keep in mind to determine when is the best time. Um, first is you need to have reached product market fit, right? So don't build a sales team before you reach product market fit because you're going to be paying people to sell a product that's not ready for the market. They're not going to be successful and it's going to be a waste of resources. Um, secondly, you know, there's a general rule that a founder shouldn't hire outside salespeople until they've done the work to hire the first 10 or so clients. You know, that number can vary depending on your price point and, and sales cycle. I think part of this is a demonstration that you've reached product market fit. And then part of it is that the founder should be, be doing this legwork so that they know how to sell people their product and then can establish sales strategies and processes that it will enable others to sell their product. 
Lastly, related to that, you should wait to build a team until you've established a sales and lead generation strategy. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to effectively deploy your sales team. So then once you're ready to hire, um, how do you structure compensation so that you're motivating your sales team to sell your product and that they feel like valued employees? I think the first thing is pay a base salary. You know, avoid a commission-only structure. Um, it makes people feel like you're investing in them and it gives them stability month to month. Um, and this really helps with employee churn so you're not always having to retrain new salespeople. Secondly, set quotas. This is probably obvious, right? Give your salespeople a target to work towards. Um, establish sales targets that are both achievable and challenging. Uh, they should be based on your industry, your company stage, and your product pricing. Uh, third, establish a commission. So that's like a variable component of pay. Um, this compensates people for their performance. A good guideline amount for this is about 10%. So a salesperson's total pay would be their base salary plus 10% of the revenue that they close. Now, a couple of things to keep in mind when you're doing this is commission should be based on the first year's revenue, not on recurring revenue on renewals, right? So this incentivizes a sales team to close new deals with new customers. Recurring revenue should really be a metric used for compensating your customer success team because those are the people who are, who are responsible for customer retention. Secondly, use sale accelerators. Um, give your salespeople motivation to not just meet, but beat their sales target. So let's say your sales commission is 10%. You can institute a 15% commission for any revenue above your established quota. And then kind of conversely, you can have lower commission rates for the amounts brought in below the quota to give people that extra incentive to meet targets. There are also a lot of other tools you can use, such as non-cash rewards and spiffs. Um, I'll go into that in a future episode, but hopefully I've given you enough to start thinking about your strategy today. I love this topic. And I think there's a, another topic that comes out of it, which is... What types of demand generation strategies should a company use? Should it be marketing, inside sales, field sales, et cetera? Um, I think there's a couple of dimensions in here that are, are very interesting. One thing that I would just add is there's a lot of thoughtfulness that companies should put on whether or not they're giving the commission on a revenue number or gross profit or contribution number, contribution margin number. That can be a real way to create incentive alignment if there's pricing variability. Uh, for the sales folks, there they have some control of how things are priced. Um, the thing I wanted to double click on, which I I think what you said is spot on and massive, is in the beginning of a company, one of the founders needs to go do the sale. Yeah. Because when you start hiring salespeople, saying I'm going to hire a salesperson, that isn't clear enough. That's like saying I'm going to buy a car. What type of car? Right. Right. How do you talk to your customers about that car? Or how do you, what are the features that people like? You have no idea. And how do you train other people to do it if you can't do it yourself? Totally. You have to be able to say, hey, here's how it works. But also it's like, is the person more wheeler and dealer transactional style? Are they someone who can become everyone's friend? Right. There's different types of sales strategies that are all great and appropriate in the right dynamics. It just depends on what your sell is. And I think you got to live it to kind of know, hey, when I'm looking for a salesperson, I'm really looking for a salesperson with X, Y, and Z characteristics. 
And that changes the game in terms of getting the hiring right. So it's just, it's too broad of a category. And a lot of people just think when they're first time at this, hiring a salesperson is hiring a salesperson. You know, that's not the case. Not the case. Um, totally agree. This is a pretty timely conversation for you. I know you're working through this on the back end. Um, yeah. What, what are the things that you find founders have trouble with when they're kind of hearing these frameworks? Where do you get pushback? Um, you know, I get a lot of pushback. I, I think a lot of cust- uh, a lot of entrepreneurs who are doing this for the first time just don't know the basics, right? Like, I think the base salary versus commission only salary or commission only structure, um, you know, kind of seems like a no brainer. But when you're a, a founder and you're you're working with a limited budget, commission only sounds great, you know. Like yes, I don't. Yeah. I, yeah, it sounds it sounds amazing, but you really have to think through all the implications of um, of everything. And then, secondly, is the timing, right? Like, I think founders, a lot of founders are, you know, more um, kind of they're, they're they're either really into the tech or they're you know not a salesperson, so they automatically want to outsource that as soon as they can. Um, and I think this waiting, like you mentioned, is uh, you know a really good discipline to have, but it's hard for a lot of founders to do. You know, I've also seen it go the other way, where you've got a founder with sales capability and DNA, and they're out selling, and they don't want to hire someone to come in and do sales because they don't want to spend the money. Right. And they're like, I can just do it. But what they end up doing without realizing it is they keep the comp- they keep the company in third gear. They never go to fourth or fifth because when you get to one another salesperson, you can eventually get to two or three, and it starts to compound. So there, this can go the other way. Totally, you know? yeah. It's hard to delegate that when you're you know, especially if you're not a, a you know a fresh startup. If you've been doing it on your own for two to three years to fill your own pipeline, and that's one of the things that's really hard to turn over to someone else. Um, but you know, you're only going to get the pipeline that, you know, o- like you only one person can do, and you're probably not paying attention to other things, um, that can really drive your business as well. As yeah. It's kind of like this blind spot. It's this, but I'm t- all the deals that are coming in are getting handled. So why would I hire somebody? And the answer is because there's all the deals that aren't coming in that could be coming in. Right. Right. If you were at every event or if you were making more phone calls or if you were sending more emails, whatever the channel is for the for a giving company. Anyway, great topic. Um, we should definitely do a, uh, when, when you should do marketing versus inside sales versus field sales session. That would be really cool. Yeah, I'd love to do that. There's a lot to think about, about in terms of how to structure your sales organization. Thank you, Fong. All right, thank you. Brad, I like your hat, man. Thank you. Yeah, it's sort of uh, emblematic of the entire reason uh, the space exists. So I figured I'd I'd rock it. I'm big on on free swag. So at East Denver, I was uh, I was a very happy camper. So this is one of the swags. One of the swag I got. For, for all the folks listening, it says censorship resistant. Yeah, it might be looks backwards to me, but censorship resistant. There you go. Um, all right, man. You're fresh back from ETH Denver. You're plugged into the scene. What's happening in blockchain? Yeah. So, uh, you know, taking a bit of a breather from all the the banking chaos. Uh, 
Arbitrum, which is a layer two roll up on Ethereum, uh, just airdrop their token. Uh, so that's that's very interesting, um, and obviously there's a ton of trading volume, and a lot of people are dropped uh, a ton of money. But it's a more interesting experiment from the perspective of why layer two tokens even exist and what should be done with them. Um, so Optimism is also a roll up on Ethereum, and they have a token. Um, and there's been a lot of chatter about what exactly you do with this token. Um, and Optimism is actually quite interesting. They use the token for voting, um, but they have a very interesting governance system. They have a bicameral system where one half uh, or, or of the bicameral system is a token house. So everybody votes according to the number of tokens that they hold. But then they have a citizen's house which is basically a number of elected people from the community to make certain decisions. So, you know, it tries to balance out the potential for plutocratic rule on the on the token side with something that's more quote representative of the people on the on the uh citizen side. Arbitrum hasn't done anything like that yet. Um, but what's interesting is that the token isn't used for fees. Uh, it, it's purely used for governance. So there's a question of, you know, how much value is actually going to accrue to these tokens. Um, so nevertheless, it's interesting to to finally see Arbitrum throw its hat in the ring uh, with a token and we'll see ultimately what they do with it. Who's in the go these governance constructs, right? It's a... Uh... It's a bunch of you know folks who are coding in and around the space or yeah. super hyped about crypto. This is representing the citizens, air quotes. It's not the broad population. No, no. Most people don't know what the hell this is. Yeah, I mean we're uh, you know we're partially involved in some of this stuff. Obviously, not as uh, you know on a grand scale in terms of like we're not in the citizens' house. Uh, we are token holders, but you know we're we're not huge token holders, so. Um, but yeah, these typically tend to be developers or people that are highly integrated into that ecosystem. I would hardly say it's representative of, you know, my parents or <laughs> anything like that. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a very interesting and it's sort of, it's not chaotic, uh, but, you know, anybody can participate if they own a token. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a free for all, but um, right. but but nevertheless yes it's it's not <laughs> it's not adequately representative of the population at large i would say yeah but this but you know what, what's so interesting about all this is this is the uh expression of the concept of creating something that looks and operates kind of like a company but isn't owned by one kind of narrow group of shareholders yeah and that's and there's not regulate red tape around trading shares, anything. It's just kind of making it open and flexible. This true, you know, how you govern a decentralized ownership is hard. It's so that's what these experiments really are. I think there's going to be fascinating case studies and it's sociological implications, it's psychological implications. There's all these things at play here that are probably bigger than people understand at the moment. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. And you're starting to see, uh, you know, certain areas where decentralization could work really well um, and where centralization or, you know, 
tendencies for centralization work much better and more efficiently, but you can have the accountability of, uh, you know, a decentralized user base for, for example, you know, the United States is, is centralized in terms of, you know, you have governors and then you ultimately have or senators and house of representatives, and then you have a president, but ultimately they're held accountable by a decentralized group of voters. And I know that, you know, there's nuances with that, but, but they're, they're slowly figuring out some of those lessons of history, but but there's a lot of cool uh, novelties that they're working in along the way with tokens and uh, you know the fact that it's built on a blockchain. So I very much uh, think that you know it's it's an interesting experiment in in governance and and social systems. I would love next uh, next week if you would do some thinking or a framework if you're into it on what we've learned about governing these types of operations yeah. now that this has been around for a bit of time. Yeah. There's got to be some rules and lesson learned and some case studies of collapses. But whether it's just applies to crypto or blockchain or if it more broadly has like, hey, sociologically, we see when you do this kind of thing, people game it. Yeah. Um, that would be fascinating. Yeah. Because in theory, this is a high volume, repetitive set of testing governance structures that should, in theory, if people are learning and paying attention, move towards a more and more practical function. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of this is, you know, mechanism design, which is, you know, trying to figure out a system that that achieves a specific goal. And um, yeah, it's it's uh, a really interesting uh, playground for a lot of these different things that, uh you know, people have had to do in the real world without the ability or option to to fail uh, without sort of big catastrophic consequences. So um, I, I would assume there's going to be a lot of academic studies on what's going on in the space, uh, regardless of whether it's right. successful or not. Uh, the crypto blockchain world is re-architecting government structures. I love that. Yeah. All right, more to come. All right. Thanks, Mark. Vivian, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. All right, let's jump in. Uh, you mind giving us an overview of Landed just to start? Absolutely. So what Landed is, it's the fastest way for restaurants and hospitality groups to hire for hourly workers. So we use our conversational AI technology plus our intelligent match to actually take a candidate from sourcing, vetting, engaging, and interview setup and ultimately automate the entire hiring process for uh, for the general managers who are you know super busy with all these other things that are going on in the restaurants. So uh, we really just kind of become a recruiter for every single one of your managers. That's a huge pain point, right? I feel like there's a lot of turnover at the places and it just feels like this is a revolving door type dynamic where oh, offloading that is huge. Enormous. The restaurant industry's turnover rate is about 130%. And after COVID, that's actually spiked up to on average about 200%, which means that you're like needing to hire a new person basically every week, if not every day, in order to keep up with that turnover. What the hell? When, how, does that, how does that even exist, right? When you, as a tech person working in these companies, like turnover at 200%, that means the entire team changes twice per year, right? Yep, absolutely. How do, you, how do they even function with that? Well, so it's interesting, right? Because if you think about the general manager's job, it's become more complex now than ever. 
general managers have to take care of now new hygiene procedures. They have to um, actually run the guest experience. They have to run the actual product. They're delivering a food product. And nowadays, there are like all these new revenue streams, right? Delivery, curbside, even like ghost kitchens, cloud kitchens. So the job of a manager has become increasingly complex. And the way that um, I think the most innovative companies out there, so we work with like Kava, we work with Bartaco, we work with uh, Dave's Hot Chicken, super fast growth brands. The thing with them is that they've realized that you can't just keep on pushing more stuff onto the manager. It's They're not trained recruiters. They're super time-strapped. So that's where these uh, tools like landed, you know, this ultimate solution that's able to take that away from the manager and leave them focused on the two things that they really care about, which is guest experience and food product. Um, that's really like how they're able to scale so quickly. I mean, Kava is opening up five to 10 new restaurants every month. Wow. I mean, that's incredible scale. Um, and they're able to do it super quickly because they don't even have to think about that talent component of their, of their restaurant operations. Okay. But let's, let's take a look more macro for a second, right? We've had COVID came pandemic. Everyone ate it. It wiped out a lot of the restaurants. People are dining now. We all know this. What's happened with the restaurant market? Why is it? Why is turnover up? What, what, what's what's the real state of play kind of post pandemic for the restaurant world? Sure. So it's it. So the restaurant world is you know a, it's super people first uh, when it comes to their guests, right? Uh, Danny Myers written amazing book on about like setting the table, things like that. But when you look at the actual um, people who are supporting this essential workforce, so the people who are you know checking out your groceries, the people who are um, in the back, like putting together the food, they have been just nonstop like for the past three years, essentially since yeah. March of 2020. Um, and I think what the restaurant industry is seeing, and because there are a lot of other job opportunities out there as like some jobs have shifted to remote, um, as you know, tech companies and other companies are, you know, booming. Um, when we, when we look at these restaurants, they now have to think about actually supporting their employees the same way as they have to support their guests. And I think that that 360 degree brand is going to come in play. So it's not just about the brand that you're giving to your guests. It's about the brand that you're giving to your, to your workers. So when they come in every day, yeah, what is the work experience? It's not easy to sit, you know, to stand there for eight hours a day on, on the fryer frying, you know, flipping burgers, right? But someone has to do it. How can you make that environment uh, a better one for them? Um, so I think this idea of like becoming a preferred employer, thinking about how you're differentiated as a preferred employer, that's been around in other industries, but it's coming to the hospitality industry in a very fast and real way. And they've been confronted with the need to introduce technology uh, in order to actually have their restaurants run more efficiently, drive up their bottom line, and also make sure that the, the, their employees are spending time on actually high value things rather than just you know menial work, repetitive wow, tasks. It's so interesting hearing you say this because I probably wouldn't even have thought of that given the industries I'm in, the experience of the team 
treating people with respect, creating good work-life balance, those are givens, right? The idea that that is just getting into that market because of, of a supply and demand shift is jolting, jolting. Now, you mentioned that they're leveraging tech. What other tech solutions are out there that you know, are really making a difference? Like, what's the modern restaurant using? Sure. So I was actually just at the multi-unit restaurant technology conference in Vegas earlier this week. And I was there as part of their innovation alley. So they had some semifinalists come up and um, we were one of the top 15, which is very exciting. There are a lot of, you know, companies out there that are doing really cool things. Like you wouldn't think it, but a drive through in a restaurant is some of like the highest tech parts of the entire operation. They have AI cameras. They have AI like you know, order taking software. They're able to do smart real-time recommendations on what you should be buying, what you should add on to your main Mm. meal. So there's a lot of really cool innovation happening um, when it comes to the actual physical space of a restaurant. And then it also on um, on the efficiency side. So you would think that the simple action of receiving a delivery from DoorDash is a, is a, is pretty straightforward, but actually there's a lot of data, messy data. There's a lot of like, you know, different fleets of drivers that you can be tapping into. So there are a lot of companies that are attacking like those parts of the problem. Um, an exciting thing that happened was that we actually got selected by the CTO of Five Guys, the CTO of uh, Bricks Holdings and the VP of Technology of Mod Pizza to be in the top three uh, to actually present on the main stage at Murtech. And so it was us and a really cool reservation um, software and a data analysis, restaurant data analysis software that ended up duking it out on stage. And we actually were voted the audience first place. So we actually won the whole competition at Landed because fundamentally, all these revenue streams and ways to run your operations more efficiently. That's great. But fun, but fundamentally, like if you don't have people who are working in your stores, you have to cut hours. You have to turn off your third party delivery because you simply can't even support that. Or you just maybe you're doing cloud kitchens. You can't even support a bigger menu because you don't have enough back of house team members supporting your existing menu. So there are all these different uh, amazing innovations out there, and I'm really excited to see them. But fundamentally, you have to keep your store staffed in order to do any of the above. What's your story? How did you end up as a, you know, working in restaurant software? That's a interesting cross section. Yeah. So, you know, I think of us as ultimately what we're building. So my parents, they immigrated to the U.S. from China and their first two jobs were being a dishwasher and a waitress at a local Chinese restaurant. Um, and so I kind of grew up in that environment. And, you know, when you are immigrants in a foreign country and we were in Ohio, Um, you don't have a community around you to support you. So you have to kind of figure things out on your own. Uh, You know, you have to figure out how to buy a car. You have to figure out how to finance that car in a place where English is not your first language, right? So what I'm really looking to build here at Landed, if you step out, um, the work that we've been doing to, uh, to date has been focused on the job component, but really what we're building is a livelihood platform for blue collar workers. Mm. And a livelihood platform comes down to three pillars. The first is a job. The second is your finances. Third is your education. So you got to take it one step at a time. We're focused on the first pillar of getting folks a foundation of their livelihood, which is a stable job or jobs 
in the hourly space, they tend to hold more than one simultaneously. Um, and I saw that with my parents. And so uh, kind of fast forward, I studied public policy at Princeton. Um, it was kind of when the gig economy was exploding. And you can kind of see that a lot of what the gig economy was doing was a labor kind of arbitrage that was happening. And but when you double click in the people who are supporting these gig economies and supporting the hourly work that's happening around us, they're you know, 25% of them are unbanked or underbanked. You know, there are a lot of predatory solutions out there for them that are just not helping them invest in their financial futures and in their livelihoods. So the goal of Landed is to actually, uh, for every single worker, um, there are 90 million of them in the, in the U.S. alone, there are over 3 billion blue-collar workers across the world, for them to be able to come onto Landed and know that their job, their finances, and their education are going to be taken care of. And that's kind of the safety net that would have helped my parents a lot. Of course, they figured it out along the way. They're both now software engineers. Um, but that's a path that should be more common. I love that. Now, I know you went through Y Combinator uh, in your journey. What was the biggest value you got out of the program? The number one value was the amazing other founders that we met. So they have these things, which are Tuesday night dinners. So everybody every week gets together and we talk about, uh, you know, the challenges that we're facing. We're all kind of in the same stage. So being in the same stage is great because you're even if you're in different um, industries, you're probably facing relatively the same challenges. So it's amazing because it's just like a candid group of people who are just there to help each other. It's you kind of cut the crap like it's not it's not about selling yourself as a founder or selling yourself your company um, or any of that. It's about like truly coming down to the nitty gritty, putting your heads together and figuring out how to problem solve and problem solve really quickly because every week we're getting together and every week we're talking about our growth and um, some weeks are good weeks. Some weeks are not so great weeks, but you can always and everyone's going to be a different path of that journey. And even today, like. You know, I I have really close friends that I've made um, from Y Combinator. We're texting each other anytime anything comes up. We text each other, and we trust the advice that we're getting from each other. That's awesome. Uh, it's obviously a very sought after program by a lot of entrepreneurs. Any tips for the folks who get in on how to best maximize the value of the experience? Absolutely. Make sure that you go to all the events like in person. Um, as much as possible. And afterwards, like kind of put together your own groups of people, like just put yourself out there. It's kind of like, um, you know, no one really knows each other when you go in. So just get to know as many people as you can. And I think the other big piece is that uh, you're separate, you know, you might be in different groups, you might be working on different ideas, SaaS, consumer, hardware, whatever. But get to know the people in all the different groups, not just the people that are in your group, because people pivot, you know, or, you know, I see a lot of co-founders. I see a lot of uh, leaders and businesses actually be hired from other companies uh, later on. So it's an amazing network and it's just a bunch of smart people. It doesn't really matter what they're working on. They're just smart people. So um, get to know as many of them as you can. Vivian, thanks for being on today. Appreciate you. Of course. Thanks for having me. All right. I hope everyone enjoyed that. I love having some guests on to mix it up a little bit. Just kind of get new perspective and keep learning. Uh, I hope everyone is doing well and we will 
catch you again next week.